Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show, and thank you for tuning in. And by the way, I'm your host, Sherry DeNovo, and I'm always happy to hear from you. So please keep your comments, emails coming. I always answer them. Uh, follow me, of course, on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, wherever you're comfortable. And I'm delighted to have two incredible advocates on the show today. Uh, first up, uh, Dr. Neely Kaplan-Mirth who I met on Twitter, who is a real patient advocate. Uh, and of course, like all patient advocates in the last year, not had an easy time uh, in frontline healthcare work. And the second part of the show is really on the mind part of the mind-body uh, uh, continuum, and that is Alice Kuritz. And Alice is the founder of Our Landing Place. Um, she's founder and clinical director there. We're going to talk about mental health, especially mental health, um, among queer uh, youth, and there's a conference coming up around that. So stay tuned for that as well. But first off, I'm so delighted to have Dr. Neely Kaplan-Mirth on. Welcome, Doctor, to the Radical Reverend Show. Thank you very much. Now, I know you as a feminist and as an advocate, and you've met the Prime Minister. You've had quite a year. So let's let's go back a bit and and talk about you know some of your experiences um, you know starting from you know a year ago when COVID really hit us. Yeah, so I guess it was last March, um, March and April that I first reached out to the media to talk about what the um, pandemic meant for family doctors, and so that was sort of like. I hadn't really said anything on Twitter in 10 years of being on Twitter. And I decided, okay, I'm going to try to reach out. And I also phoned CBC and phoned uh, just local uh, reporters in Ottawa and said, you're not getting the story about what's going to happen to family doctors and to community physicians and to primary care with uh, with the pandemic, we didn't have PPE, we didn't have any supports. And right off the bat, hospitals were given uh, priority for everything. And, and I, I mean, I'm an anthropologist before medicine. So I knew that our structures, our institutions are privileged before community, particularly before something um, like family medicine, pediatrics, you know, teachers, we're all women, right? We're, we're predominantly women. And we are uh, doing the messy work of, you know, preventative healthcare, but we're not glamorous. We're not in, in the eMERGE, we're not in the ICU. So we are very quickly forgotten about. And so I, I reached out and, and I realized also that people didn't know how our healthcare system works. And they didn't understand that when I said, well, I'm a family doctor and I work in this model of care, there's sort of just a perception that, well, doctors are all fine. What are you talking about? You know, stop, stop whinging and, and who cares about you? You'll be fine. And I'm like, no, actually, uh, you know, I work in, I work in central Ottawa. I have patients who are vulnerable population and, um, and our province says that we're not a high needs area. So therefore I don't have the same kind of income stability or supports that I would have if I worked in a different area of, um, of the province. So anyway, I started talking about that. I started talking about our, how our healthcare system works, trying to do just a little bit of 
you know, public education about, about healthcare and primary care. What, what is a family doctor? What do we do? And, um, and from there, I mean, that type of advocacy was advocating for my colleagues, uh, who, whose practices and clinics were closing because they, they couldn't keep going. Uh, I got a photographer to come around and, and do sort of a little photo essay to take pictures of us in our workplaces to try to explain what we do and why it matters. And trying to push back a little bit against the, the narrative that family doctors were not working during the pandemic, which has been extremely frustrating for the last 12 months as I've been seeing patients in my office, plus like nonstop phone calls with patients to support them as the pandemic was starting. Like the first um, part of March was answering people's calls and talking to them about how they could get a COVID test and what the symptoms might be. And, um, and patients who were um, sick uh, didn't have anywhere else to go to have somebody just phone them a few times a week to say, okay, can you breathe? And who's taking care of you and who's dropping off food to you and all of those kinds of things. So anyway, it's been a very, very long 12 months of doing that. But in addition to that, um, I've been uh, advocating. So it's kind of like advocating for my colleagues, advocating for my patients uh, and uh you know, talking about things like, well, what if they don't have a car? What if they don't have a computer? How are they going to register themselves for a COVID test? And then, you know, with the whole flu shot debacle saying, well, you know, my patients can't line up in a line for two hours with their children in the cold waiting for a flu shot and saying, you know, well, this is going to happen again when it comes to the COVID vaccine, whenever that's available. And then lo and behold, here we are, you know, uh, months after the vaccine became available and we're, we've watched our colleagues who work in hospitals get the vaccine, even the people who don't have any interactions with patients. So they might just be researchers or clerks or others. And uh, family doctors, yeah, we're not vaccinated. And we can't, even though we're the ones who always do all the vaccines for our patients, we can't convince the province or our public health units to fight for us to be able to give the shots to our patients ourselves. So it's very, very, very frustrating. In addition to all of that, I've also had to advocate for women in medicine. So there's been, um, there's been a, uh, uh, you know, kind of lack of women being seen as experts when media goes to speak to physicians for the very, you know, first several months of the pandemic, it was really just men who were being interviewed, who were on the radio all the time, who were on TV all the time. And the more a person is interviewed, the more they are um, given this, this credence as being some sort of expert, right? Whether they have actually any expertise or not. And so I started to speak up more and more. And so then I started to be interviewed. And anyway, I, th that, that is something I'm passionate about, you know, dealing with racism and sexism, sexism in our medical institutions as well as in media. So that's another area that has been exhausting. And, um, and you know, I was speaking to, to uh, a physician colleague of mine and, and talking about what it's been like. And we came to the phrase that this has been sort of an unmooring of civility, that people have... Um, you know, it's, it's kind of felt like every man for himself and it's really been kind of every man for himself. And, uh, and when you, when you speak up for the people whose voices aren't heard, uh, 
you're, you're, you're attacked and you're, um, put through all kinds of, um, stressful situations that, uh, really are, um, you know, an added burden on top of trying to take care of your patients and trying to, uh, you know, just keep things going. So it's been, it's been a long, a long year for sure. Uh, speaking to Dr. Uh, Neely Kaplan-Murth here on the Radical Reverend Show about uh, uh, her experience with frontline care. Um, and you mentioned doctors leaving, like just sort of packing up shop. Mm-hmm. Talk about that. Why? I, I mean, you know, I, I think this is this people, the public miss this about, you know, family doctors and what's actually going on with you. Um, yeah. Mo- and, and you're right. Most people sort of assumed um oh, well, they're not there, or maybe I shouldn't go, or, you know, I, I've got something wrong, but maybe I'll, I'll wait till after COVID, or, you know, yeah. I mean, there's all this perception that it's dangerous um, to walk into your office that, you know, uh, I, I, and, and yeah, I mean, what happens from your end, and why are people leaving? So, you know, I was part of uh a national conversation with other family doctors, doctors in Alberta were, were sort of similar to doctors in Ontario and then, and then other places as well, but saying that, you know, we've never felt more demoralized. We've never felt less supported um, than we have through this pandemic. And um, one of the things that happens is, uh, you know, when we didn't have any personal protective equipment, then, then it was like, oh, okay, well, it's, it's actually dangerous to, to see people. But, you know, f- for example, um, if you, if you, if you can't, and, and we weren't paid in Ontario from March until July, and, and, and whereas the doctors working in hospitals were. So like, how many different messages, how many different ways can you, can you be told that your survival doesn't matter? Right. And we think of primary care as being so important. You know, we take care of everybody from newborns to geriatric patients, like really what we call, you know, from from cradle to grave. We are the ones who have these long term relationships with our patients. I have fifteen hundred patients in my practice. I know all of them, their stories, their families, their histories, their you know, what's going on with them in terms of their physical health, their mental health. I provide the counseling because many of those patients don't have access to private insurance in order to see therapists. So I have people who come and see me once a week. I have some people who, it might've been their only outing. And, you know, so then when offices were closed, um, it it was like, okay, now they don't even have that. So I opened up my office and um, people donated some, some, like my, my, my uncle, who's a dentist sent me masks from his office so that I would have masks so that I could see these patients. And he was like, you know, Neely, I want you to be able to immunize those babies. And I'm like, absolutely. I mean, you know, of course I'm going to immunize those babies and I'm going to see the people for their mental health, whether, whether, you know, it means that I have to, you know, go broke buying my own PPE or not. Um, but for a while it was kind of touch and go as to whether or not we were, um, going to be able to keep everything afloat because it's running, it's running an office without any other, like I'm not on a salary because I'm stuck in this fee for service model. So Ontario um, several years ago said that, uh, you know, they weren't going to allow anybody else to join a model of care that is, is much, much healthier that basically says, well, you have this number of patients and so you'll be paid this amount each month. I mean, what other, what other, um, 
civil servant doesn't have any benefits. We don't have sick leave. We, I write prescriptions for massage and psychotherapy and all these things all the time. And we don't have any of that. And what people always come back to is, well, yeah, but you've chosen to be a professional and to be private. And, but I didn't. I didn't choose that. That was some other generation of male doctors who thought that they wanted to be businessmen. And I don't want that because I spend the time with my patients and I want to be in a model where I don't have to, you know, I don't see quantity as being more important than quality. I spend the half an hour or the 45 minutes or the hour with my patient. I don't want to just say, well, one problem per visit because that's not good medicine. So uh, I want out, but I can't leave my patients. The only way that I could join a model that would be a, a better, healthier model would be for me to leave downtown Ottawa. And then my patients would be without a doctor. Like there, there's, you know, so um, I'm very envious of all the doctors who happen to already work in the models that, that are better, but I don't have any way to join them. When they retire, we can take over their spots. But the problem is that when they retire, they're looking for a doctor who doesn't already have their own patients. So I will never be able to take one of those spots. So I'm stuck. And, and I love my patients. And, and I mean, that's what matters is, you know, I'll keep running my own little practice and doing what I can in order to be able to keep taking care of them. But it's, but you know, there's a, there's a toll. And, you know, what I was seeing comments from new graduates in Alberta were saying, you know, like they've never felt more horrible being a doctor because their province isn't supporting them and was telling them that if they left the province, they could not practice medicine. So it's a feeling, it's a feeling of being trapped. And, and also it's this sort of tug of war because our conscience is like, I'm not going to not take care of my patients just because um, this really sucks. Like it would be much better for me to close my practice and, you know, move to even just, um, you know, 45 minutes away from where I am, but I wouldn't be allowed to bring my patients with me. So, you know, it's like, well, okay, I guess my, my well-being doesn't matter as much as taking care of the patients matters, but that's the kind of thinking that, you know, our colleagues have written a lot about that. It's, it's like, we're supposed to, um, martyr ourselves in order to take care of others. And I'll give you just a nice little example because last week... I just I, want to interrupt one thing because yeah. one thing just jumped out and I don't think people are aware of this. You said you're not, you weren't getting paid from March to July? No. I mean, well, this, then, is, this is... I, I mean, I don't think people understand or know that in the public that's shocking how well, does how did the government yeah. possibly justify that you have practices to run so eventually eventually what the government said is well we'll give you loans we'll give you loans we're not going to give you any kind of income stability but we'll give you loans but the thing is how do you supposed to pay back a loan if you're so for me what i did in order to be able to ensure that i would be able to pay back the loans is i worked double so when i say i'm working 60 hour weeks. I'm not kidding. Like I was working seven days a week. I was taking calls from patients on the weekends, in the evenings, like no self-care because I had to be, be absolutely sure that whatever it was that the government was going to give me as a loan, I was going to be able to pay back. But what about the dermatologists who couldn't see people in their offices because COVID. So how are they supposed to, like, we were all already working full time. It's not like, you know, okay, then once, once we can, work again, uh, we'll just, you know, work double. And I mean, the surgeons were worried about that too, because they can't just book double OR time, right? So the idea that we would get a loan and then how are we supposed to pay that back? Like, and, and again, I mean, there's an assumption of privilege. I 
paid my own way through school. I was on my own from age 16. I did not have any family who was a doctor. I did not have any supports other than my own government loans. So when I graduated from medical school, I had an $180,000 debt that I had to pay off. And, you know, it's, um, and, and again, because I, I was an anthropologist before, like I, I know, um, I know the, um, you know, perceptions of privilege that, well, if you're a doctor, well, then you're in the top percentile of, of people, you know, in terms of earning capacity. Well, what if people don't know your story? What if people don't know who you are or what you've done to get to where you are? So there's this huge assumption, which, which you know, I've seen actually during the pandemic, uh, you know, GoFundMe things for, for medical students who came over and then, you know, weren't eligible to get bank loans. Um, and, uh, and I mean, you know, it's a broken system because if, if you, the only people who can go into medicine are the people who are already wealthy, then, you know, that's, that's a, a class system that, that is problematic. Right. So, but the assumption that always that, well, you're a doctor, so you must be fine. I'm a family doctor. I am not, I am earning a quarter of what those hospitalists are earning who are specialists and I am working flat out. So it's just very um, you know, like that's exhausting. But so uh, the example that I was going to give of how we're not valued is, you know, we've been advocating and advocating and advocating for family doctors to be able to give our own patients the COVID vaccine. And, um, and we've been told by public health that um, Ontario, you know, wasn't letting them. And then we see in Toronto, you know, oh, amazing. They've convinced, they've convinced the government to let them have some pilot sites. But we don't have that. So what are we what are we sent to do? We're sent to go into retirement homes to immunize not our own patients, but to just kind of be like minions. I just spent last week in retirement homes where um, there was no communication from public health. There was no backup support. I showed up where it used to be 12 people working and instead there were only three of us. We were going through a retirement home where we weren't told ahead of time that they were on lockdown because somebody had who is who 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 had been there had been um, uh, tested positive for COVID, so the residents weren't allowed to leave their rooms, but we had to go into their rooms, and not a single resident was wearing a mask. So, what is the message to me? I'm not immunized. I'm going into retirement homes. I'm seeing all of a sudden a hundred people, and they're not wearing masks. Am I disposable? Like, does anybody care? Because if I get sick, I, there is no redundancy built in. There is nobody else who's going to take over my practice. If I get sick the way that some of my patients have with COVID and I can't get out of bed for months, my practice closes. Like, that's it. I close down. My patients don't have a family doctor. And I don't have sick leave. I don't have... So, you know, there's just that sense that... And, and I know that that's also been... that. PSWs have expressed that concern and anybody who has, uh, I mean, teachers have benefits, but they also feel that they, you know, that they're, they're, they're very much disrespected by our province, no question about it. And, you know, the um, nurses, uh, they're lucky because nurses and and, uh, teachers have unions. We don't have unions. And again, you know, people will say, well, you know, you're doctors, you chose that. Well, I didn't choose that. Right. So uh, yeah, we're, we're, kind of saying, well, you know, nobody is 
going to come and do a photo op with us in the community because um, because we are nobody. And then, you know, we're like, well, we're not nobody. We're so important. People love their family doctors. You know, we, we have these relationships, but at a provincial level, we're nobody. So that's that's the uh, the the unmooring of civility is feeling like, you know, nobody um, nobody thinks that they need to uh, be gentle with us and ensure our survival. And, uh, and, and yet people, you know, will say they need their family doctor because it's the person who helps them navigate the healthcare system. Speaking to here to Dr. Neely Kaplan Mirth on the on the Radical Reverend show and, and hearing the reality of being a family doctor in this province, what do you think's behind this? I mean, in the, to use the teacher example, I mean, it's very clear and it's clearer to teachers and it's clear to people who are in political circles that really what's behind this is privatization, the government's point of yeah. view. I mean, they'd love to have a yeah. voucher system. They'd love to go the American way where, you know, teachers are underpaid and undervalued and, and anybody with any money sends their kids to a private school do you yeah. think there's some of that same mentality uh, operative in what you're talking about like I, I'm thinking walk-in clinics and all sorts of other a hundred percent a hundred percent so one of my patients today um they all hear me on the radio and on the news and whatever and you know and he said oh you know Dr. Kaplan Earth I I uh, your name came up at a community meeting because in our in our neighborhood we uh we want to get a a health clinic set up and so somebody mentioned you and said you know well, this doctor, she wrote an article about primary care and, and, and I just kind of didn't know whether to laugh or cry because I know what is going to happen is that they're going to build a building and they're going to recruit another apple tree kind of corporate big box McDonald's medicine thing to go in there. And that is not, that is not what we want. And that's what's happened even with the pandemic. Um, the, the, our own medical institutions kind of let us down by um, uh, emphasizing uh, virtual medicine because that allowed corporations that provide private virtual medicine to take over. Explain why why isn't that what we want to people who so, maybe just don't know again the back story? Yeah, because it's because it's a model. It's a it's a for profit model based on um, you know. I'm not going to have any relationship with you. You're not going to have any continuity of care. Um, I don't know anything about you. And I don't really care about anything about you. Just phone me and I will, you know, prescribe you antibiotics. Like that is what happens in, in, in walk-in care all the time. And, um, and these, these businesses that are, um, you know, basically like you have to pay them. So that undermines our universal healthcare system. Right. So if, if you can't, get in to see your family doctor today and you have to wait till tomorrow. And literally there's never a longer wait for something that's urgent in my office. Then, you know, I'll phone you the next day if I can't get through to you today. Um, but if, if you have the option of just paying for your services, then you're creating these tiers of healthcare and you're creating this um, and you're undermining the publicly funded healthcare. That, that is, you know, uh, when patients say, well, I don't want to have to wait to get an MRI and we're like, well, actually this isn't an urgent thing. You can, you can wait for a month to get your MRI. This is okay. Well, I'm going to go and pay and I'm going to, you know, so then you're, you're just creating these, these tiers of healthcare. And it was the same with education when the pandemic began and people are like, well, I'm going to pull my child out of school, but I'm going to pay for a private tutor to, you know, be a little learning pod. Like, who gets left in the classroom, and and then what actually happens? And and, and we spoke in in our 
prescription advocacy podcast, we spoke to a teacher back in September and she predicted exactly what happened, which is you pull people out of school, then the funding goes down for those schools. Then the classrooms don't, it's not like then the kids who are left in school have, you know, a nicer ratio. No, they just clump them together. They, they pull teachers from that school. So it's the same thing with medicine. If you want to replace me with a, with a robot, fine. Go ahead, but you're not going to get anybody who's going to then know your history, know your know your family, know you know all the things that are going on for you, and certainly you're not going to get somebody who's going to provide you with primary mental health care. So you know you you lose the family doctor who actually has a relationship. You you lose a whole lot more than just uh, you know the 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 publicly funded model that we fought for. So I, we've just got some a few moments left, but I want to get into what we should do about this. You had an audience with the prime minister. Um, that's a rare thing. Um, yeah. I'm sure you told him some of what you've just told our listeners. Um, what's, what's the answer here? And I'm speaking again to Dr. Neely Kaplan-Mirth. Yeah, so I, I reached out to, to healthcare professionals and also community advocates across the country. And, um, and then I reached out to the Prime Minister's office and said, can we speak to you about the issues that we're all facing? And to my delight, he said, yes, I had no connections. So it was kind of like, you know, he was just willing to speak to a family doctor. I also did the same thing with an, with a, um, a, an MPP in Ottawa at the beginning of the pandemic. And, um, and you know, what we talked about is that we need, we need a model of equity that, you know, should be our framework. It should be what we all strive for and, and our provinces should, and territories should be held accountable if we don't have equity in access to vaccines, in access to healthcare, mental health care. Um, and, and it was a really, it was a wonderful conversation. He ended up spending longer than he had even said that he would speaking to us um, and Minister Haidu as well, uh, the, our Minister of Health um, spoke to us. But, you know, I left that conversation with a glimmer of hope, feeling like, OK, you know, when we talk about equity, when we talk about issues of sexism, racism, um, other forms of systemic discrimination in our healthcare system, uh, there are ways to address that, but we have to be able to talk about it without being punished for talking about it. and. Um, you know, that's, that's where, you know, I also feel like my heart sinks because I'm not sure I've seen too many colleagues during this pandemic punished by our province or by, um, you know, various institutions for speaking out. And, um, and we don't necessarily have uh, the backing even of our own medical organizations when we do speak out. So it's, um, so it's, it's kind of like, we need to keep speaking and I know that it does make a difference. Uh, we've seen ways in which all the advocacy has actually helped to push issues like equity to the to the forefront. But um, but also sometimes it just feels like you know we're 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 pushing mountains. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're pushing mountains. You are, and and I'm so grateful that you are. Um, so we've been talking to Dr. Neely Kaplan Berth here on the Radical Reverend Show about what life is really like for your family doctor. Um, so keep that in mind, uh, and what uh, you know some of the solutions that we really have to stretch for. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show. I wish we had more time. Wish we had an hour to talk to you, um, but we will be back. Um, uh, and uh, we'll see about, because I'd love to talk to you about vaccines too, but just maybe one more minute. What should we be doing about vaccination? <laughs> Very wow. quick. 
Yeah, we need to be we need to be um, doing so many so many uh, different models of vaccine rollout, but we need to be uh, giving the vaccine to family doctors and nurse practitioners in primary care to be able to actually immunize our own patients. And um, we would do home visits. We were like, we're basically saying we will do every single model that would possibly, uh, you know, get our population uh, immunized in, in a more timely way. But um, unfortunately we don't have the, we don't have the ability to, to make that happen. So we're just kind of sitting at the sidelines and uh, wringing our hands. Well, thank you for speaking out. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Stay tuned for the second part of the Radical Reverend Show. Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show and excited to have my listeners back again. It's your host, Sherry DeNovo, as always. And by the way, just to let you know out there in listener land, I love your comments. I love your feedback. So keep it coming. I always answer questions. I always respond. So love to hear from you, however you get in touch with me. I'm delighted to have Alice Curitz who is the founder and clinical director of Our Landing Place. And we're going to talk to her about her and what that is and a conference coming up. So Alice, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Thank you so much for having me. So tell me, first of all, how did you get involved in founding The Landing Place at all? So what's your story? So my story is I am a registered clinical counsellor and Canadian certified counsellor. And I initially had gone into private practice just kind of on my own doing my thing. And I was overwhelmed by the the need within the LGBTQ2S plus community for queer, competent and affirming counsellors. Um, and so I hadn't really expected that, that I would really be doing much of anything. It was like, I'm just going to specialize in this. This is my community. Um, and, it, and it sort of took off. And I recognized that there was actually a lot more of a need than I had realized. Um, and so, you know, I, I sort of looked around and I saw that there are some really incredible queer therapists out there doing amazing work, but sometimes it's hard to find us. Um, And so I wanted to create a space where folks who are sort of outside of a a regular box that maybe we would put people in can, can land and can feel like, you know, oh, I've sort of come to a place where I feel like I belong, where I can look at therapists and see myself reflected in them in some way. And so I invited some some other amazing queer therapists to to join me and create a a collective of counsellors where we serve the LGBTQ2S plus community across Canada. We work with poly folks, we work with neurodiverse folks, um, and we we create a very affirming, welcoming space for, for people all across Canada to show up and get really competent and affirming mental health services. It sounds amazing. And and of course, I'm sure during COVID, it's, it's even more necessary than usual. We're hearing certainly sounds from the queer community uh, here and across Canada in terms of anxiety, depression. Uh, people are locked 
down, locked in, and feel locked down and locked in. Uh, and of course, if you're in a marginalized community, it's even worse. So, so are you seeing that too? Or what are you seeing in terms of the changes that COVID has brought about in your profession? Yeah, it's been really interesting. And, and it's very true. You know, I think that a lot of LGBTQ2S plus folks can often feel quite isolated within their communities, but then, you know, they can often find ways to connect, be that through, you know, queer youth groups or um, drag performance shows or the local pride society when they have events. Um, and with everything sort of locking down, that that feeling of isolation has grown a lot. Um, we're also finding that, you know, a lot of youth aren't in safe housing. They can't necessarily be out with their families or they've come out to their families and have not received a warm welcome for that. And so, you know, they're not feeling particularly connected because they're not connecting with their community. And that is really isolating. Um, the flip side of that is that, you know, I've been doing online counseling since before COVID, but it really took off at that point because that was sort of the only option for many people. Um, and it's really broadened our reach. Um, and it's also created a shift in the way that that people generally are accessing health services. Um, I also think that, you know, we found that there's been a huge surge in um, the way that people are using social media to promote um, wider knowledge about sort of injustices that are happening or, or communities that typically don't have such a voice. And so there's been growth in that area, too. And so it's been kind of interesting to see how there's definitely been a shift. Um, but we are finding that, you know, I, I would say typically with, with anybody, there has been a higher need for mental health services because of isolation and huge life changes. And, you know, this this sort of overwhelming almost global grief that all of us are feeling to certain extents over the lives that we had or the lives that we thought we would have. I mean, the number of people that were so excited to start a business at the beginning of 2020, or I'm going to graduate and have my prom this year, or I'm getting married this year, or this is the year that I take back my life and I do the thing I've always wanted to do. And to not be able to do those things has really created a sense of grief. And I think that's coming out in, you know, increased feelings of depression. Certainly, I've seen an increase in anxiety with a lot of folks. Um, and a lot of that is that lack of connection. And so when we bridge the gap with online services, that can really help folks who are feeling that lack of connection or um, that sense of, you know, these are all the things I wanted and I don't have the words for that. I just know that I'm feeling a sense of grief and I need somewhere to put that and I need somebody to hold space for that for me just for a little bit of time so that I can ease that burden for a bit and I can feel connected to somebody who gets it. Right. And so it definitely there's been a shift with COVID. It's interesting that you focused online even before COVID hit, because it seems to me that for some time now where counseling is concerned, that that is the future if, as well as the present that we're mm. all in. Um, does this make it I, I, I'm going to ask the embarrassing question about how much you charge, because I'm sure there are other people out there uh, listening that think, oh, sounds good. OK, how much would be their next question? So how much do you charge at the at, at the landing place? So at our landing place, um, our therapists, um, we, we our therapists charge 
um, the same amount so that we're not competing price-wise, so that you arrive and you find the person that's the right fit for you. I do charge a little differently. I'm not currently taking new clients. I'm, I'm shifting my focus a lot more to the educational um, sphere of things, to really promoting and advocating for closing those gaps in mental health services. And so my rates are slightly different, but I do also do slightly different things. Um, I think that there was a, um, perhaps prior to COVID, there was a misconception that online counseling was worth less than in-person counseling. Um, and, and we did see that there were definitely therapists out there who just had online practices who did charge less, not all of them. Um, but, you know, the research shows without a doubt that online therapy for the majority of people, and this is not universally true, but for the majority of people, it is just as effective as in-person. And in some ways, it can be more effective in terms of access. If we think about folks who um, have financial or physical barriers to physically accessing certain spaces. Um, and so I think that what we're seeing is that folks are really shifting to understand that you're paying for the person that you're connecting with. Um, you're not paying for the chair that you're sitting in. Um, and, and I would really encourage people out there when seeking a therapist, find a person that you click with. It's kind of like dating. And at this point, it's kind of like online dating. Uh, but to really to really seek that connection, because that's where a lot of the magic happens. Um, I mean, obviously, there are financial barriers to services. I totally understand that. There are many therapists out there that offer sliding scale. Um, there are there are tons of organizations that offer community support. Um, and we're really hoping that that those community based services will will connect with lived experience trainings, um, such as the one in the conference that we'll chat about, so that they can really raise their level of affirming and competent services for queer and, and other marginalized folks. So I, I didn't hear an answer to that question in there. <laughs> I'm just going to push you, you know, being the interviewer here. And by the way, you're listening to The Radical Reverend Show and uh, my, your host, Sherry DeNovo. And I'm speaking to Alice uh, Kuritz, uh, who is the founding founder and clinical director of Our Landing Place, which is online counseling with a focus on queer folk, um, which is why she's on my show. And I'm delighted to have her here. Um, so so I'm, you know, I'm I'm. A queer youth in some small town. I mean, I can see how online works so well for so many because not everybody's in a big city and can walk around the corner to, to a therapist. Um, a lot of people, you know, just don't have access, period, to anybody yeah. except online. So so I would walk into our landing place, virtually speaking, uh, and mm. um, and your counselors would be, how, how do, for, I, I guess let's step back from the, the price, but I would do want to hold that out there because people should know um but but you know how do I match up with one of your counselors how does that process work yeah it's a great question so typically what will happen is that somebody will arrive at our website it's our landingplace.com just plug that a little bit uh, but you'll arrive at the website and you can jump to the about us section and you can see our headshots and we'll have just a list of the areas that we focus in. And then you can click on any one of us and find out more about us. And I would really recommend doing that. There's a picture, you can see our face, um, you can read more about us. And then we all offer 15 minute free consultations. And you can do that with one of us if you feel a, a possible connection. You're welcome to see more than one of us if you'd like, if there's maybe two of us that you're like, oh, I don't know which 
person I feel like I have a better connection with. But that was something that when I started my practice and as I as I expanded into our landing place, bringing more people into the collective, I felt that was really important because having autonomy and driving your own bus in therapy is so important. And to have the opportunity to sit with somebody for 15-ish minutes and, and just decide, do I feel like this is a person that I can say all those vulnerable and ugly and uncomfortable things to and, and feel safe doing so is really important. And so for us, our clients coming in and having a chance to meet us and decide if they want to work with us is the most important thing. So if you contact our general email inbox, we're not just going to randomly assign you a counselor. Uh, we will likely have a suggestion if you say, you know, I'm particularly wanting to focus on this thing. Um, then, you know, we have different strengths and weaknesses and different areas of focus. And so we'll likely suggest, you know, this person or this person may be really great fits. Please check out their, their profiles, see what you think. And then you can book in a free consultation and get to know them a little bit. So what do you charge? So all of our counselors charge $175. That includes all taxes um, per 50-minute session. Uh, my my rate is 200 per 50-minute session. But as I said, I'm not currently accepting new clients. My caseload is very full. Um, and um, so we, we prorate that if you need a longer session. Um, when we're working with youth, we do find that sometimes a slightly shorter session can be really beneficial. Um, you know, particularly for the younger side of youth, um, a 50 minute session is sometimes just too long. Um, so we do prorate that, but those are our rates. And then it's, it's up to each individual counselor as to how many sliding scale spots they have available. Um, and so if, if that's something that, you know, folks are, uh, coming up against financial barriers, but they say, you know, so for example, one of our, one of our counselors is Liana. I really want to work with Liana. They, they are super rad. Um, but I'm having some financial barriers please reach out and let us know and we will do what we can to support you. And if we can't support you in a way that works for you financially, we are connected to tons of resources and we just want, want to make sure that people are finding the right fit for them. So you do refer on as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so important. And that seems to be, if, if not the going rate, probably a little below what people are charging, certainly in the GTA that I'm, aware of so well thank you for that so people know before they're they call you up yeah and we have our rates published on our website as well um but in terms of referring out you know i think that it's really important that um you know we we only refer out to folks that we trust with referrals um we're also not in the business of just trying to get you with anybody at the clinic if, if there's not somebody at the clinic that's a fit we would like to facilitate that for you so um I, I often will have people reach out to me and say hey I'm actually looking for community-based drop-in counseling but I wanted to ask you if you have any recommendations for that um and so we're always happy to connect people with the right places and right across Canada which is important yes so, yeah um, so again, uh, you're listening to The Radical Reverend Show. I'm, I'm speaking to Alice uh, Kuritz, uh, who is founder and clinical director of Our Landing Place. So Alice, um, the real reason, well, that's a good enough reason to hear about your Our Landing Place. Uh, so queer counseling, always a necessity. Um, conference coming up. What's that about? Tell us. Yeah, so... Um, I'm super excited about this. This is the first year that, that it's running, and the goal is to have this be an annual event. Um, I noticed that, you know, with so many gaps in 
queer affirming and competent mental health services, that it wasn't an intention thing. There are so many mental health providers out there who are genuinely accepting and celebrating of the queer community and who love working with our community. Um, But there are definitely gaps in terms of the education that's available. And one of those big gaps is lived experience. And so what I wanted to do was to put together um, uh, an event or a conference in which um, particularly mental health professionals, but realistically any healthcare professionals, educators, members of the general public, and members of the queer community could come and listen to folks from different intersections of the queer community about stuff that's happening and about the way that their intersections coexist or maybe even come into conflict with mental health and mental health services across Canada. So we have an incredible lineup of queer identified folks from across Canada with with a variety of intersections and really interesting um, presentations. Um, It's not sort of just your your stereotypical, like the ABCs of LGBT. Um, That's definitely needed in some spaces, but I feel like it's 2021. And for the most part, people out there know the ABCs. It's past the ABCs. And it's it's really interesting, unique viewpoints on what is happening in terms of what's currently happening, um, where these big gaps are and how we can fill them. And also some sort of future looking, you know, what what are we going to do? How are we moving forward in certain realms? Uh, one of the uh, one of the noticeable um, histories of, of being queer, of course, um, in the world, but but certainly in North America and in Canada, is the psychiatrizing, if I can use it, of of the condition of queerness, and mm. and that wasn't that long ago. I mean, one of my bills that I managed to get passed when I was in political life was banning conversion therapy in Ontario, for example, um, and I was quite shocked that it was still going on um, uh, when I was on a committee for something different. Um, so we, we moved on that. But I mean, I, I was also interested in that process of hearing stories, and they weren't all happy. In fact, there were a lot of pretty tragic stories about, about people's interaction with, you know, the mental health field. Um, do you still hear that? What's your sense of what's happening just generally out there? I mean, we certainly we've come a long way. I mean, with the DSM and everything else, we've come a long way. But there's a long way to go is my you know, lay person's, you know, sort of acknowledgement. Yeah. What, what do you see? Absolutely. We have a very long way to go. Um, and, and there have been big strides made in certain arenas. So, you know, within our lifetimes, you know, homosexuality and what they used to call gender identity disorder um, were, were pathologized in the DSM. I mean, this is hugely problematic. Um, And fortunately, that's no longer the case. But the stigma attached to that is absolutely still around. Um, Have have things shifted to a point where for the most part, it's not so much maybe in some communities. And I think that those who are fortunate to live in more diverse communities and more sort of metropolitan hubs um, are definitely seeing that more. Uh, but having lived in a rural, remote community, I can tell you that that stigma is still very much alive. Um, and, and we do find, you know, unfortunately, that clients will come to us and, and be really nervous and say, you know, I almost didn't reach out to you. I almost bailed on this. 
because I went to this place that I was recommended to go or that I was referred to. Um, and, and I had a horrible experience, whether it's that the person is actively being homophobic or transphobic, or if it's just that there's that lock, lack of knowledge and understanding that leads to somebody having to explain everything about themselves all the time. Another thing that we're seeing is, you know, queer folks absolutely, absolutely have stuff they want to talk about, about their gender and their sexuality and their lived experiences, but they may just have anxiety and need somebody to talk to about that. And it may have absolutely nothing to do with their sexuality. Or, you know, it may be that somebody presents um, to a counselor who is racialized and disabled and queer, and those three intersections create huge amounts of barriers to them in terms of, you know, their their work life, their home life, their social life. Um, but the therapist isn't knowledgeable about that and so isn't able to understand those nuances. Um, and so it's really important that we not only have queer therapists and racialized therapists with lived experience working with these communities, but that other therapists are able to understand this a little bit more. I mean, yes, we can absolutely learn from our clients. I learn from my clients all the time and I love that, but I don't expect them to do the emotional labor of teaching me. And I think unfortunately that is often the case just because of the gaps in, in available trainings and knowledge. Again, speaking to Alice uh, Curitz, uh, founder and clinical director of Our Landing Place. And I, I just have a minute or two left, Alice, but I want to focus back in on the conference, when it's happening, how you get to be part of it, what sorts of things you're going to hear on the panels, etc. Talk, talk to us about that. Absolutely. So it, it's live streaming on April 21st. Um, it's also all being recorded, so you can access it at any time that is convenient for you thereafter. Um, we have all sorts. We I think we've got 10 different sections. Um, so we've got um, beyond gender neutral bathrooms, serving trans clients with care and competency, anti-capitalism and rest as resistance. Um, we've got queerness, religion and spirituality and navigating those intersections. Uh, we talk about intimate partner violence. We're talking about working with older communities um, and bridging those gaps in technology. Um, we talk about consensual non-monogamy, also known as um, polyamory. Uh, we have a mindful uh, movement section, which is an all-bodies accessible yoga. Uh, we talk about psychedelics and, and being queer within the psychedelic world. Uh, we're talking about anti-capitalism and rest as a form of resistance. Um, we're talking about how to bring the counselor into the session in a way that's affirming. Um, so we have some really incredible speakers. And like I said, every one of the speakers is a specialist in their field, is a member of the queer and also other communities. Um, so it's April 21st. It's called Queering Mental Health, A Canadian Perspective. There is a Facebook event. Um, we are selling tickets through Eventbrite. Um, and currently you can save $50 on the admission price if you use promo code PROUD2021. Um, all of that information is on the website, on the Facebook website. It's also on our Landing Place website. So you can definitely check it out there under the workshops tab. Thank you so much for being on the Radical Reverend Show. I'm looking forward to the conference. It sounds phenomenal. So especially the one, I mean, I'm just intrigued. Psychedelics? What? <laughs> It'll be really yeah. interesting. And we're, seeing, we're definitely seeing a shift that psychedelics are being used as a form of therapy very successfully. 
Um, and so it's going to be really interesting. These, this is one of these future forward ones. It's going to be really interesting to see that. Looking forward to it. Take care. Thanks a lot, Alice. Thank you. Mm-hmm.